pastoral in nature. It seems appropriate and perhaps even overdue for us to hear from God on the topics of marriage and divorce. And so this morning I want to preach from several scriptural texts on the subject of God-defined marriage. Marriage as God sees it. Marriage according to its maker. Now that sermon title should immediately tell you that I will not be asking any human experts, such as psychologists or sociologists, to help us define marriage. We will not survey Hollywood, the last group of people we ought to ask, or the world's religions even, to gain their insights. Instead, we will see how God himself defines marriage from the inerrant and sufficient Holy Scriptures. This will allow us not only to critique the world's definitions of marriage, but also to hold our own thoughts and practices regarding marriage captive to the Word of God. So let's begin by reading Genesis 2, 15 to 25. Genesis 2, 15 to 25. You know this section well, most of you, but try to listen with fresh ears. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, notice something else is going on here. He's not just examining animals and naming them. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the historically accurate account of God founding the institution of marriage. In these verses, he establishes and explains it. And despite its brevity, this account is full of deep, healthy, practical truth. Now my outline this morning 
has four points. And for some of you, you may learn very little that is new today. I'm simply trying to sum up marriage in one sermon. Close to impossible, we're going to try it anyway. Because I believe this can be very helpful to us. First, we will look at the setting in this text. Then, the definition of marriage. Then, the establishment of marriage. And then, the confirmation about marriage. So, the setting for this first marriage, its definition, its establishment, its confirmation. So, first point, its setting. And here, I just want to make two points. First, the story is set within the pre-fall garden of Eden. In verses 15 to 17, God made Adam the first human image bearer. As one made to imitate God, he is placed in a mountain garden temple and assigned the tasks of work and worship. In this garden, he is also placed under a covenant of works. Life and death are placed before him. And although Adam has been made very good, chapter 1, verse 31, his righteousness has never been tested. His holiness is unconfirmed. So yes, he is good, but untested. And it's in this sinlessly pristine context that the Lord God set up certain creation ordinances. These are institutions or practices that are meant for all of humanity to follow for all time. So God defines what humankind are. They are made male and female. God speaks against our culture. He then defines their status in the world. They have dominion over the entire earth. They are tasked with working at their calling six days each week. And it's also ordained by God that they, in imitation of him, are to rest one day each week. And finally, God instituted the joining of this male and female in what we call marriage. These are the God-ordained institutions that define humanity. Their status, their tasks, their rest, and their relationships. These are the creation ordinances of dominion, labor, Sabbath, and marriage. And each one in our text is defined by God and God alone. He is the creator. And so this is his absolute and exclusive right. He makes man and woman, and he defines them. He is their Lord, so he is their lawgiver. His definitions for dominion, labor, rest, and marriage aren't just one option among many. They are the only valid definitions for humanity. He didn't share his work of creating with anyone else. And so he doesn't bow to anyone else's ideas about their meaning or function. He is the Lord. He is the Lord. Amen. It's that simple. That even means he's the Lord of marriage. 
Notice something that isn't here. Notice that these creation ordinances aren't given first to Israel. Oh, they will be later. But they are given to all mankind under their covenant representative, Adam. He stands in their place. And he receives, not just for himself and for his wife, but for all of humanity, he receives these institutions. And so all men in every place and for all time, regardless of their religion, are subject to these things. Marriage is God's institution for all of the descendants of Adam. So notice that my sermon title wasn't marriage as defined by Christianity or marriage as defined by Moses, although we could do that, perhaps profitably. Nor is it marriage as defined historically. No, we are studying marriage as defined by God for every human being. So let me sum up this first point in our intro, the setting. God alone defines marriage, and he did it before sin entered the world. So it is naturally a good thing, and it applies to every child of Adam. That doesn't mean that everyone is made necessarily to be married. It does mean it is the ordinary pattern for humanity. And we see all this just in this setting in the Garden of Eden. Secondly, under this introduction, um, there is one thing that's named in these verses that is not good. Over and over and over again, it was good, it was good, it was good, and it's all summed up as very good, except one thing. Although the garden is pure, it isn't complete. Because Adam is incomplete. You see, he is supposed to image the triune God who made him. That God is one in three and three in one. He is identified in these early chapters of Genesis as God, the Word, and the Spirit. Yes, the Trinity is here in seed form. In himself, the Creator is a loving social being. In himself, God is a loving social being. Being. He is three persons, one God. That's why if you were told like I was when I was a child, God made you because he was lonely without you. Besides other things we could say, that's simply not true. God was never lonely. He is the eternal blessed one. He's the eternally happy one. Why? Because he's in perfect loving communion as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's a social God. So also, image bearers must be social or relational beings. If we are to reflect God accurately, we cannot be by ourselves complete. Like God their maker, every image bearer must both be personal and interpersonal. And so in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him and fit 
or fitting simply means suitable or, or matching, a corresponding, complementary, appropriate. All right? But someone might say, but, but God made so many creatures already. I mean, surely one of them is a fit for Adam. No. Because God paraded all the animals to Adam for him to assess their natures and name them. And in doing this dominion work, one thing became clear to Adam. There was no helper that fit him. He did not identify another image bearer. And so God made the woman also in the likeness of God, chapter 1, verse 27. It's not males alone who are image bearers. Males and females are both full image bearers of God. So God made the woman in his likeness and brought her to the man. This teaches us that however marvelous animals are, and some of them really are, They are not the equals of mankind, nor do they belong in a marriage relationship with them. God shows that only a man and a woman are suitable for each other. So that's our first point. That's the setting. That's the complete background information. Let's move now to the more formal definition of marriage that's found in verses 24 and 25. Notice three things here about God-defined marriage. First, it requires one male and one female. For some of you, your favorite movie includes the phrase, man and wife, man and wife, man and wife. That's right. Those are the only suitable pair in God's eyes. Now, someone might say, yeah, but, yeah, the story has a man and a woman in it. You're, you're right. But nowhere in this story does it overtly forbid, you know, two men or three women or any other combination from being married. But the Bible answer to that is, no, you are mistaken. God defined marriage in these verses requires male and female, and it is limited to one male and one female. Why do I say that? Because when God establishes his institutions, he displays the correct plan, and that disallows every other arrangement. God's word is not only true, but it is sufficient and complete when it speaks on these subjects. So when these verses tell us that humans were made in God's likeness, it means that other creatures, like animals or fish or birds, were not made in his likeness. When these verses tell us that we are to work six days and rest one, it means that other man-made arrangements that have been tried, like five and two and ten and zero, and those have been tried in human history and failed, all of those are contrary to God's pattern. And when God ordains one man and one woman to form a new household unit, that means it can't be two men or two women or one man and five women or one woman and a cat or 27 cats. 
the Lord God instituted the first marriage as the paradigm for every other marriage and the pattern must be followed. So that's the first part of the definition. It requires one man and one woman, one male and one female. Secondly, we see in verses 24 and 25 that the man and the woman establish a new public household together. The man leaves his home and takes the woman to himself. She joins him. And this is done publicly, not privately. No marriage is a secret deal between a man and a woman. As the foundational relationship for mankind, marriage affects all the other spheres of God-appointed authority that exist. Things that we today would call home, church, and state. All of those have an interest in knowing who is married and who is not. And so marriage must be open and clearly transacted so that all of the interested authority structures can see it. And what this establishes, what marriage establishes, is a new household. Neither the man nor the woman continue to live under the authority of their parents. They may even live in the same physical house, but there are at least two households there, if it's obedient to God. Thirdly, by way of definition from verses 24 and 25, Marriage solves the problem of loneliness through companionship. Marriage solves the problem of loneliness through companionship. God recognized that Adam was alone and it was not good. So he provided a friend, a companion, a partner. This was someone he could hold fast to cleave to, cling to, and become one flesh with. Adam completed Eve. Eve completed Adam. Together, they were whole. Only together were they whole. They were meant to fulfill the creation ordinances together. They were to share work and rest to face the life of subduing the earth and filling it with children and worshiping and on and on. These were not individual tasks. This was their joint task to be done hand in hand as one. And this is all emphasized by the phrase, they shall become one flesh. Now we tend when we hear that phrase to think of sexual union, but that's only a little part of it. Flesh here simply means person, as it so often does in the Bible. So marriage, when rightly pursued under God, will result in two becoming one, in body and soul. Marriage produces an intimate, interpenetrating oneness in every aspect of life. Complete trust and openness ought to characterize marriage. This leaving, cleaving, and interweaving points to the planned permanence of this relationship. Clearly, God is establishing no temporary joining, but what was meant to be a lifelong one. Now, all of this, these three basic definitional points out of these verses, all of this and other scriptures that we'll look at in just a moment, leads us 
to this definition of marriage. And I'm going to quote this multiple times because I hope, and I mean this uh, seriously, I hope you will memorize this. If you can think of a better way to do it uh, and express it, correct me and let's learn a better one. But here's my understanding of the Bible's definition of marriage. Marriage is a lifelong covenant of intimate companionship. I think it was Jay Adams who first coined the phrase, marriage is a covenant of companionship. And I think he's absolutely right, and I will show you that from Scripture. I already have, but I will show you more in just a moment. But that's, that's really just a good start. Marriage is a lifelong covenant of intimate companionship between one man and one woman under God and before society. That's a fuller definition. One more time. Marriage is a lifelong covenant of in intimate companionship between one man and one woman under God before society. Now there are hints in the Genesis account that marriage is a covenant. We won't go into those, but there are other scriptures that expressly state that God ordained marriage is a covenant. I'm going to give you the two uh, best known ones. The first one is in Proverbs 2.17. There there's a warning against an adulteress. Now listen to how this woman is described. She is one who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. There it is. Covenant and companionship. She made a promise to a man before God for companionship and she's left him. She was in a covenant of companionship, yet deserted it. The second one, many of you will know this one, Malachi 2.14. The tribe of Judah is condemned because of their faithlessness in marriage. And here's what the verse says. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. God was at the marriage ceremony. He was a witness to hold them to their promises. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. There it is again. Marriage is a covenant of companionship. Full-orbed companionship. Body and soul. Everything from work to vacation to worship to children to every part of life. The leaving and holding fast in Genesis 2 hints at this covenant transaction, but these verses plainly declare it. Marriage does not happen because of a mere sexual union. Oh, there is a kind of uniting. There is a kind of one flesh uniting, according to Paul. But that isn't marriage. Simply living together for a long time doesn't automatically make you married. That's not what marriage is. Marriage is a covenant of companionship. Marriage happens when a man and a woman swear to be husband and wife before God and society. The marriage covenant is formed and it is meant to be permanent. The vow one makes to become a husband or a wife 
is the second most serious vow that a Christian would ordinarily make in their life. The only greater covenant promise is given in baptism to the Lord. Covenants of this consequence aren't made privately. They are public matters. And so whether in front of just a few or many, people pledge themselves to each other so that others know their new status. This marriage covenant is made with each other and before God. All people who are married swear to each other before God whether they know he's there or even believe he exists or not. It doesn't matter. This is still his ordinance and he is still present and he still requires certain things. Amen. This is his institution and it never happens without him. Never were two people married by themselves. There were always at least two people and God in the room. Just as the Lord brought Eve to Adam, so he brings each couple together. They should acknowledge that and live accordingly. And in this union, there is full intimacy, or at least there's meant to be. You know, this is the only relationship in the Bible where God says that sexual union is lawful. And not only lawful, it is encouraged and rejoiced over. For those of you who aren't Christians, you may have been told the lie that God doesn't like sex. Ridiculous. God invented sex and promotes it vigorously inside of marriage. Yeah. Marriage is the setting for children, for multi-dimensional love, for becoming one flesh, for enjoying each other physically. So again, God-defined marriage is what? A lifelong covenant of intimate companionship between one man and one woman under God before society. Well, much more quickly, let's look thirdly at its establishment in these verses in Genesis. There is an actual marriage ceremony here. God brings the woman to the man, and, and he, notice the language, he joins them together. Is there a sense in which they join themselves together? Of course. But the real actor here is God. He's the one doing the marrying. There are many descriptions of properly executed marriages in the Bible. Their cultural expressions vary widely from one another. And some of them are quite interesting. The passage I forgot to read just a moment ago uh, in Ruth 4 that we'll get to in a moment um, has a very interesting wedding that I I, I'm certain is nothing uh, like any that you've experienced, all right? But every one of these properly executed marriages contain God and a man and a woman making sworn promises to each other for them to be husband and wife. Well, fourthly and finally, we have here its confirmation. You know, the texts from Genesis and Proverbs and Malachi, they don't need confirmation. They stand by themselves as the word of God. And so everyone who has God's spirit accepts 
this teaching. But in our day, many deny the historicity or the truthfulness or the sufficiency or the applicability of these texts, and especially of the one in Genesis. And so for any doubters, I turn you now to the words of Jesus Christ himself in Matthew 19. What did Jesus think about God's institution of marriage in Genesis 1, 2, and 3? Let me read just verses 4 through 6 of Matthew 19. This is Jesus answering the question about divorce. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh, one person. They're a unit. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus' words about marriage are plain, to the point. Notice that those who are suitable for marriage are described as male and female. They are a man and a wife. And he even goes further than Genesis and expressly says that they are just two. They're not three or five or some flexible number. They are two. He then shows his complete approval of the basic definition of marriage given in Genesis by quoting Genesis 2.20, what we call Genesis 2.24. Jesus said marriage involved leaving one household and forming another in which companionship and unity are found. This union is in marriage is not found only in the agreement of the man and the woman. Again, they don't join themselves together as much as they agree when God joins them together. Verse 6. And so this was all meant to be permanent. Now, it doesn't take into account sin in the fall yet, right? I mean, we're still back in the Garden of Eden. And that does change things. And we'll see that next week. But this was the original purpose for marriage. And Christ completely agrees with it and even expounds on it a bit more with some specifics. This is a covenant. And while it can be broken, it shouldn't be. And this explains Christ's warning against separation, which is simply the word for divorce um, here. So if you will not believe Genesis or Proverbs or Malachi, will you believe Jesus? I know very few people who despise Jesus, at least as some kind of philosopher or good teacher or something. So if you won't believe the rest of the Bible, will you believe Jesus about it? No, you probably, probably won't. But that's just more to your condemnation. Jesus is the God-man. And when he speaks about such things, he speaks authoritatively. He speaks to all mankind, including to you. Well, I have just two uses. The first is, um, has been my goal for this sermon. And that's for you to learn from Scripture God's definition of marriage. Again, I would urge you to memorize it or improve upon it. Marriage is a lifelong covenant of intimate companionship between one man and one woman under God and before society. You know, if you are already married, 
then I urge you to prayerfully, prayerfully pursue living out this definition. For those of you who will one day marry, Lord willing, understand what you're doing, what you are committing to, what God designed marriage to be. As we will see, Lord willing, next week, if we understand correctly from the Bible what marriage is, it will help us to properly define divorce. Because divorce is the undoing of a marriage. Now this definition of marriage will also help us to act as Christians in society and in the church. It will inform our prayers and our voting. It will keep us from capitulating to those who charge us with bigotry and hatred when we disagree with their ungodly definitions of marriage. Brethren, we stand with the wise and good creator when it comes to this definition of humanity's most fundamental relationship, marriage. Recently, it's been very popular to say, oh, you're not on the side of history. Well, we are on the side of history on this one. <laughs> From the very beginning to now, until Jesus Christ returns. But whether it appears that we're on the side of history or not, we stand on the side of the one who instituted marriage in history. And that should be enough for us. Well, secondly and finally, know that marriage points beyond ourselves to God in Christ. Now, this could be a whole series of sermons. I have two very short paragraphs. So go home and meditate on this. Think about, discuss over, over lunch. Um, what this might mean. But know that marriage points beyond ourselves to God and Christ. It has to. Because marriage is temporary. It lasts until one partner dies. Even in the larger picture, marriage is temporary. It exists only in this age, as Jesus said. Jesus said that in the age to come, we won't be marrying or giving in marriage Luke 20:35. So marriage is ultimately meant to glorify God by reflecting the blessedness of love between the persons of the Trinity. Marriage ultimately is meant to glorify God by reflecting the blessedness of love between the persons of the Trinity. Do you think discord is a small thing in your marriage? When you fight with one another, you're not acting as a righteous image bearer of God. The father never picks a fight with the son. The Holy Spirit never grows cold to the other two persons. He never stalks out of the room. God's perfect joy and unity among his persons, that's our pattern. You say, that's impossible. Yes and no. It's impossible completely now, but it's very possible right now. Why? Because that same God lives within us. That same God loves us and died for us and lives in us to apply his grace and his character to us so that we actually reflect him more and more. 
Christian spouse, go home today and commit to reflecting God in your marriage. Marriage also pictures Christ in the church. Biological families, as important as they are, will be dissolved in the next age. But the family of God, the church, that will last. And Christ will be the church's husband forever and ever. Christ is now the church's better husband. And we are now his bride. And so let us strive for oneness and unity among ourselves and with him. Let's pray.